people spend hours a day at the computer reading the latest research and reading volumes of information about collapse and frequently they're anxiety ridden or depressed or feeling in despair because they don't know how to get their ducks in a row to prepare for this daunting future. And meanwhile, they may not have cultivated deep relationships with family members or friends and they may have no sense of community. And most of the time, it's interesting, although they talk about defending the earth and loving the earth, they have no relationship with it. That was Carolyn Baker, the author of Love in the Age of Ecological Apocalypse, The Relationships We Need to Thrive. I'll be talking with Carolyn today. From KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Religion for Life. I'm John Shuck. Religion for Life explores the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. Ecological apocalypse. Is that where we're headed? I could start with the bad news regarding our perilous state of affairs. Earth 2015, a planet in a pickle. I could talk about how the fossil fuel party is over. We've picked the low-hanging fruit to satisfy the needs and desires of a world population that has increased fourfold since my father was born in 1918. He's still living. The rate of conventional oil production, that's the sweet stuff that gushes out of the oil wells, peaked worldwide several years ago, and we are on the downslope of Hubbard's curve. Fancy technologies have emerged to reach the harder, dirtier, more sour oil and shale. It doesn't take a chemical engineering degree to see that there's no long-term future there. On the other end, burning fossil fuels has resulted in filling our atmosphere with greenhouse gases, The CO2 concentration in the atmosphere as of March 2015, as recorded by the Mauna Loa Observatory, is 401.52 parts per million. We broke the 400 part per million barrier this year. Scientists warn us that the upper safety limit is 350 parts per million. You're familiar with Bill McKibben's famous organization, 350.org. We passed 350 in 1988. We've just started to feel the effects of climate change in terms of extreme weather conditions, rising sea levels, and so forth. If we have any hope of slowing the rate of global warming, we'll have to keep the remaining fossil fuels in the ground rather than dreaming up ways to extract them and burn them faster. I could go on and discuss our predicament in detail, but you know enough already. Do we need another book or workshop or lecture on the acidity of the oceans or the melting glaciers or species extinction or peak oil? Maybe we do. But perhaps what we need more than more information is resilience. How can we prepare ourselves and our children psychologically and spiritually for this future? That's today's topic. My guest is Dr. Carolyn Baker. She's the author of Love in the Age of Ecological Apocalypse, The Relationships We Need to Thrive. We'll talk about that book today. Carolyn was on Religion for Life a couple of years ago discussing her book, Collapsing Consciously, Transformative Truths for Turbulent Times. She's also written Navigating the Coming Chaos, a handbook for inner transition, and Sacred Demise, Walking the Spiritual Path of Industrial Civilization's Collapse. She lives and writes in Boulder, Colorado, and manages her website, carolynbaker.net. She's a former psychotherapist and professor of psychology and history. She offers life coaching for people who want to live more resiliently in the present as they prepare for the future. Her radio show, The Lifeboat Hour, airs on Progressive Radio Network every week. She's with me via Skype from her home in Boulder, Colorado. Welcome back, Carolyn, to Religion for Life. 
Well, thank you, John. It's great to be back with you. I I'm really enjoy our times together. Well, I really enjoyed your new book. Um, tell me about, uh, to kind of just set the stage again, tell me about the audience for this book. What does your readership already assume about the future of industrial civilization? Yeah, um, the readers of this book are probably already followers of my work, or perhaps they've been drawn in by the cover or by some of the endorsers of the book. Uh, no doubt, however, they're already aware of the collapse of industrial civilization to the extent that the title of the book does not frighten them. And what I'm finding more frequently now is that people want to hear less and less of the facts about the collapse of industrial civilization and more about how to live, how to live as collapse deepens and catastrophic climate change seems to almost eclipse collapse in the shorter term. And so to that end, I also have a radio show, as you mentioned, the Lifeboat Hour, which people can listen to every Friday afternoon and also call into with questions or comments. It's internet radio and the location is prn.fm and the show airs at 2 p.m. Eastern time. Does ecological collapse refer to a shutdown of our government and institutions as well as food and energy supply? Well, I certainly think so. Um, you know, for me, ecological collapse means that catastrophic climate change is altering and will further dramatically alter life as we know it on this planet. In fact, catastrophic climate change is annihilating life on this planet as we speak. And ecological apocalypse means that it's likely that perhaps within the next 50 to 100 years, most of life on Earth will no longer exist because the planet has become uninhabitable. And at some point, that may mean the shutdown of government and institutions. But in terms of food supply, abrupt climate change, by definition, means severe contraction of food supply. And that's why it's so important to be able to grow our own food and to know how to grow it with very little water and learn permaculture techniques for growing food under extremely challenging circumstances and learn all of the skills that we can when this industrial growth way of life goes away. Well, your, your argument is that it's uh, not enough to prepare physically, uh, such as storing food or learning to garden or getting out of debt, but we need to prepare psychologically and spiritually as well, specifically in regards to our relationships. Uh, are cultivating relationships perhaps uh, even more important than some of these other things? Well, I think so. Uh, my friend, Dr. Guy McPherson, who's compiled some of the most dire research on climate change, is fond of saying, only love remains. And every day as I coach people and speak with them, who folks who are reading the science of climate change or are learning about the collapse of industrial civilization and how to prepare for it logistically, um, I notice that often people spend hours a day at the computer reading the latest research and reading volumes of information about collapse. And frequently, they're anxiety-ridden or depressed or feeling in despair because they don't know how to get their ducks in a row to prepare for this daunting future. And meanwhile, they may not have cultivated deep relationships with family members or friends and they may have no sense of community. And most of the time, it's interesting, although they talk about defending the earth and loving the earth, they have no relationship with it. So I often ask such people, or perhaps anyone who works with me, to go out into nature and spend quality contemplative time developing an intimate relationship with nature. 
This means not doing anything in particular in nature, like hiking or gardening, but just being present to the smells, the sounds, the colors, the tastes and textures of nature. And usually this is very difficult for people in the modern world because we're so estranged from nature. But gradually, as we increasingly expose ourselves to this kind of interaction with nature, we find ourselves falling in love with the earth all over again, or perhaps for the first time in our lives. So yes, Cultivating relationships with the earth and with other humans is perhaps much more important than our logistical preparation. All of these relationships are emotional, sometimes physical, but always spiritual in the sense that relationship always moves us more profoundly into the deeper self or the sacred within us and within the beings to whom we are relating. Well, one of the uh, relationships, of course, that's uh, critically important would be the relationship to those closest to us, such as a spouse or a significant other in our life or a partner. And, uh, and you write in that first chapter, uh, what if one is collapse aware and the other is not? What's at stake uh, for this couple and, and how do they navigate through this? Well, as you're right, uh, chapter chapter one, as you were saying, is uh, is absolutely about that. It's called uh, living, loving, and preparing with a reluctant partner, and it's all about this dilemma. And I offer a host of tools that people can use to work on this issue with their partner. Sometimes working through this disruptive dilemma is not possible, and the partners in the relationship decide to go their separate ways. And for some people, that may be inevitable. But if you're a partner who's aware of where industrial civilization and the ecosystems are headed, and your partner isn't, there are more and less effective ways to have a conversation about this with one's partner. And that's what the first chapter of the book offers in a great deal of detail. Um, I'd like to add here that I have a life coaching practice in which I offer people a safe place to talk about issues surrounding collapse and abrupt climate change, including this issue of living with uh, and loving a reluctant partner. Most people that I work with have no one to discuss our planetary predicament with, and they're seeking guidance not only around relationships, but want coaching and living their life purpose, reinventing themselves in a career or small business that's more feasible than the current work they're doing. And sometimes people want spiritual counsel in terms of doing grief work or finding meaning in the many, many losses that we're all confronting. So uh, partner relationships are just part of that. But in chapter one of the book, I offer a lot of tools for how uh, partners who are on different pages with this issue can converse and negotiate this and possibly even come to be in harmony on this topic. And, and as well as uh, relationships with our partner, relationships with children, too. Uh, what do you say, and you write that the fundamental responsibility of uh, a parent preparing for this future is to plant seeds of resilience. Uh, how do we do that? Yeah, I have a whole chapter on children and collapse. And, you know, I believe that we must teach our children not only survival skills, but living skills and particularly relationship skills. We teach kids or we should teach kids how to be resourceful and we should teach them how to be empathic as opposed to entitled, um, how to be compassionate, compassionate instead of narcissistic. Um, we cultivate within ourselves and model to our kids radical empathy, not only empathy for people, 
but for other species and the earth itself. And we teach them that there may be many ways to solve a problem. And we also teach them that not all problems like catastrophic climate change can be solved. But we teach them the skill of learning how to respond to situations when we can't particularly change them. Now, many people, of course, live in the suburbs. They enter the house uh, through the garage with a garage door opener or never needing to see a neighbor. Um, so how important, of course, are neighbors and our neighborhoods uh, in cultivating and, and in cultivating those relationships for the future and for the present? Well, you know, neighbors and allies in the community are our lifelines, not only uh, lifelines to survival, but to living lives of peace, passion and purpose. That person who sits at the computer all day looking for validation of what they already know is a lonely person who doesn't have people to talk with about what they know. Now, fortunately, there are now a number of really good support groups on Facebook, but that's not the same as talking with a live human being. Whatever our future holds, none of us can navigate it alone. We can try, but attempting to do so is going to make a future that's much more miserable than it may already be. So to live lives of peace, passion, and purpose, we need allies, people to talk with, laugh with, grieve with, and perhaps even die with. And by the way, I want to let people know that one of the key aspects of my work is conscious grieving and grieving in community. So accessing our grief is one of the most important things we can be doing right now. And doing that in community with the blessing and the support of the community so that we can discover the power of our heartbreak and allow that heartbreak to show us what our mission is in these daunting times. If you're just joining us on Religion for Life, my guest is Carolyn Baker. She's the author of Love in the Age of Ecological Apocalypse, The Relationships We Need to thrive. And your book really is a spiritual book. It's a book about uh, embracing our shadow, discovering our purpose, building a soul community, as you put it. And people listening might not be sure uh, about the details uh, of our future or of collapse, but this is an important work to inspire people to live lives that matter. So uh, regardless, I mean, even if you thought the future was going to be rosy and prosperous, you'd still write a book like this, wouldn't you? Absolutely, because even if we take collapse and catastrophic climate change off the table, the real issue is how we're going to live, as I said, with peace, passion, and purpose. But since we have the collapse of industrial civilization and catastrophic climate change breathing down our necks, we can't afford to live as if these things don't matter. The fact is that we may all be going through a near-death experience right now, or as some people have suggested, we may be living in planetary hospice. Whether we are or not, you know, obviously we're all going to die because birth is fatal and no one gets out of here alive. Uh -huh. But the real question is, how are we going to live? I mean, really live in the face of what we're confronting. So this past week, I wrote and posted an article entitled, Is There Life Before Death?, uh, which people can find on my website at carolynbaker.net. And in it, I give some very specific tools for how to live with peace, passion, and purpose. And above all, we need to cultivate mindfulness and deep appreciation for everyone and everything in our lives. And that's true whether we have these daunting challenges in front of us or not. Now, of course, one of the most important ways to prepare is, of course, to be physically uh, healthy. And you write about the importance of being present uh, in the body. What do you mean by that? 
Well, very few people are present in the body because industrial civilization keeps us in our heads. And as I say in the book, living in the head keeps you dead. Again, this is part of the mindfulness practice I referred to a moment ago. One of the most important ways of being present in the body is through the breath, paying attention to our breathing. You know, we breathe so little in this culture. And the poet Mary Oliver asks, are you breathing just a little and calling it a life? Um, cultivating a healthy lifestyle through diet and exercise and through some body awareness practices such as yoga or qigong is very important not only to become fit but to appreciate this miraculous body we inhabit and the fact that our body is also the earth we are the earth our bodies are the earth and I believe the more we can love our bodies the more we will love the earth and vice versa you know when I think of uh, 20 and 30-year-olds, I just want to say to them, uh, I think Michael Rupert used to say that, I just want to say to them, I'm sorry. Um, they, they, they're going to feel uh, the brunt of dissent fully. And yet you write that it's important for people of all ages to live with a sense of gratitude, uh, even in the midst of all that we might be uh, thinking of ahead. How, how do we generate gratitude for life as life? Well, um, I have quite a bit of uh, material in the book on gratitude in, in one of the chapters on our relationship with resources, which I'd like to come back to if we have time. Sure, um, go ahead. But mm -hmm. I also have a chapter in the book called Loving the Time of Your Life, in which I talk about how important it is to appreciate whatever age we are. And I also talk about becoming a wise elder at any age, because being an elder is not about age, but about cultivating wisdom. So the question is, how do we extract deep wisdom from the experiences of our lives at any age? What do we allow life to teach us? We need to be asking ourselves on a regular basis, what story did I come here to live and am I living it? And absolutely, the older generations certainly owe the younger ones an apology. Personally, I try to do this on a regular basis. I rarely meet a millennial or a Generation Xer that I don't apologize to for the world that my generation has left them. Hmm. Now, some of the relationships, uh, as you mentioned, uh, include our relationship with money and resources. Uh, how, how, how can we live a loving relationship with, with the bounty of Earth? Well, the first thing I think we need to notice is that it's only in the modern world that we even call these things resources. In indigenous cultures where people had an intimate relationship with the earth, um, a mountain, for example, was not a resource, but a living being. And the same with rivers, forests, trees, and animals. And I think there are four ways we can return to the indigenous attitude toward these living beings that we call resources. And I spell this out in the book. The first way is by consciously cultivating gratitude, as we just said a moment ago, especially for the little things. Take nothing for granted, or perhaps we should take everything for granted in the sense that all of life is granted to us by this beautiful, magnificent, magnanimous earth. We should all be going about our lives saying thank you as often as possible and meaning it. And secondly, as I mentioned before, we need to do grief work. In some indigenous cultures, the people believe that if we don't do grief work on a regular basis, we become toxic to the community. And the reason for that is that grief work expands our heart and shrinks our insatiable desire to acquire more than enough. The third, the third aspect of the indigenous attitude toward resources and the earth is guardianship. 
We willingly assume responsibility for guarding and tending some aspect of nature. It may be a commitment to a small piece of land around us or animals or livestock nearby or a local lake or river, uh, whatever. And the fourth aspect is giving back. We must give back to the earth community with our skills, our time, and our financial resources. This means service and paying our lives forward because whatever we give always comes back to us. We do it for ourselves as much as for other beings. You write uh, about uh, the darkness and about shadow. Uh, what is our shadow and, and why is understanding it and exploring, uh, exploring it important and how might we do that? Well, it's ironic that you ask this uh, because I'm just finishing up a book right now uh, with the working title, Dark Gold, The Human Shadow and the Alchemy of Global Crisis. The shadow is the part of us that we say is not me. In other words, other people are dishonest, but not me. Other people are racist, but not me. Other people are greedy or consumeristic, but not me. And just as everyone has a personal shadow, there's a collective shadow that's created by all of us as a result of not dealing with our personal shadow. And, you know, what we're seeing right now in American society is a white culture that has never fully dealt with its slave-owning past. We think that because we've elected an African-American president, the shadow of racism has vanished. And what we're seeing in the streets of our cities right now absolutely confirms that the shadow of racism hasn't gone anywhere. You know, Carl Jung said that if we don't heal the shadow, it will keep biting us in the behind because, in fact, the shadow is a part of us that we need. That's why I titled the book Dark Gold, because Jung also said that 80% of the shadow is pure gold. And if we can confront it and explore it, and commit to conscious shadow work, just as I talked about committing to conscious grief work, we'll tap into phenomenal creative and healing energy and not only be able to heal our relationships with others, but enrich those relationships deeply and enhance the love that is already there. In your book, uh, Love in the Age of Ecological Apocalypse, I, I read it as an invitation to a bigger picture. Um, what does collapse tell us? about our relationship with the universe itself. Well, indeed, Love in the Age of Ecological Apocalypse is an invitation to a larger picture. And I believe that the purpose of being here in all times and all ages is to examine the purpose of being here. Uh, countless people throughout human history have done that and have written volumes and created phenomenal works of art expressing their experience of doing that. But we live at a time uh, that is unprecedented in human experience because we may very well be facing the extinction of our own species. So unlike humans in previous eras, we're being compelled to ask questions of meaning and purpose. The human species is the one that makes meaning. Other species don't need to find meaning in their experiences, but we do. And today we're in the midst of a huge meltdown of life as we have known it, and we may well be in planetary hospice, I don't know. Uh, so let's ask those deeper burning questions, no pun intended here with runaway global warming, mm -hmm. uh, but let's use these myriad global crises to search our souls and bodies and utilize all of our relationships to discover who we are and what the universe is and what on earth we're doing on this planet. 
The gift of the global crisis is that it's the shattering of the human ego so that who we think we are can give way to who we really are. These disruptive dilemmas are forcing us to stop clinging to any false hope except the sacred, which asks us to go into our heartbreak so that we'll experience deathless love, deathless compassion, deathless courage, and deathless service. And in that process, we find great peace and great love. And of course, uh, your book is filled with references to to other authors and other thinkers. You just mentioned Carl Jung. Who, who have been some important influences and guides in your life to get the bigger picture? Yeah, well, of course, Jung has been the mentor of all mentors to me. Um, I owe him an enormous debt for what he's given me. And my dear friend, Andrew Harvey, who has written and spoken volumes on sacred activism, has really been a soul brother and solid supporter of my work. The amazing mythologist, storyteller, and drummer Michael Mead has greatly influenced me, as well as physicist Brian Swim, who so beautifully marries science and spirituality. And I've also been nourished by the work of Pema Chodron, Clarissa Pinkola Estes, Vandana Shiva, and Jane Goodall. Those who've become collapse aware, you talked about this a little bit already, by watching documentaries on peak oil or, or reading about it in books, uh, can really get head focused, as you say, just really depressed. And we can keep searching for more information, but more information really isn't uh, helpful, is it? Uh, you write, living in the head keeps you dead. <laughs> hey, can you get anything to, more to say about that? Well, you know, when you're in your head, and the reason I say living in the head keeps you dead, when you're in your head, you're away from your feelings. And what we all need and what the world needs is not more intellect and clever ideas. If that could save us, it already would have. What we need is more connection, more compassion, more service in the world. And those only come with feeling and acknowledging our heartbreak. And for that, we have to be much more in the body. Carolyn Baker uh, is my guest. She is the author of Love in the Age of Ecological Apocalypse, The Relationships We Need to Thrive. And one last question for you. We're just about out of time. But if you could say one, two, or three things that we might do to begin, uh, what would they be? In other words, what do you want people to take away uh, from your book and from your work? Well, four things, actually, and they're, they're short. Um, I would adamantly suggest the following. First of all, we must make a commitment to some kind of spiritual practice. Now, if people bristle at the word spiritual, they should know that it has nothing to do with organized religion. It simply means a recognition of something greater that lives within each of us and in nature. And a mindfulness practice is a good place to start, or meditation, yoga, or doing vision quests of some sort. Secondly, we must make a commitment to do shadow work, and I'd like to recommend uh, life coaching with me as a place to start that, and also people may want to watch a YouTube video with Andrew Harvey entitled, How Dark is the Shadow? Thirdly, spend time with animals. 200 species a day are going extinct. Do something for animals in some way every day in order to make their lives easier. And finally, Make a commitment to be a sacred activist who has allowed radical heartbreak to guide you in a mission in life where you really discover the gifts you came here to give and give them. Whether or not that mission works is not up to you. Your decision is to give your all no matter what. 
sacred activist, Carolyn Baker, uh, author of Love and the Age of Ecological Apocalypse, The Relationships We Need to Thrive, has been my guest on Religion for Life. Uh, find out more information about her important work at carolynbaker.net. And thank you for this book and for your work. And thank you for being with me today. Thank you, John. You've been listening to Religion for Life at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. I'm John Shuck. For information about upcoming shows and to hear or download podcasts, including the podcast of the program you just heard, go to religionforlife.com. That's religionforlife.com. Follow Religion for Life on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and hear us on iTunes. Religion for Life is heard on KZUM, Lincoln, Nebraska, WEHC, Emory, Virginia, WETS, Johnson City, Tennessee, and Religion for Life is produced by KBOO Portland. Be well.